Well, good morning. If you're visiting and we've never met before, my name is Charlie. I'm the associate pastor here. You know, last week as Pastor Ben was wrapping up his message, he gave you a distinct way to remember me by. He said, the guy who's coming up next week, he has a lot of hair here and not so much up here. And I was thinking all week long, what could I help you learn about Pastor Ben that would help delineate between the two of us? Well, he's the tall, handsome one. That's a lesson for all you kids out there. Never insult your boss in public, okay? It's not a good idea, and it's true. And Holly's here this uh, service, so I want to respect her as well. So Pastor Ben, though, last week, he talked about the Olympics. And I'm fascinated by the Olympics for the reason that these people, they learn a skill and work on it for over 1,400 days until they get one shot at glory. And it's interesting to me that most of these skills have no redeeming quality in the real world whatsoever. You know, they work on this and work on this, and they're not working a job as a sprinter most of the time, leading up to sprinting in the Olympics. But you know what's more incredible and fascinating to me is the Winter Olympics. Because if you look at the list of sports in the Winter Olympics, it's even more ridiculous. There's like no redeeming quality other than maybe being an athlete for most of these sports. You've got the luge guy. Where's he using that in his normal life? Right? Or the skeleton just bombing this hill. But my favorite is the ski jumping. The ski jumping, right? This sport must have been made up by some high school boys at one point who were on a mountain who just said, hey, let's do a competition where I'm going to jump off that jump and jump farther than you. And now it's an Olympic sport. They literally jump off a jump and fly as far down the hill as they can. Not a whole lot of redeeming qualities in that that you can use in the real world as you live your life leading up to the Olympics. Well, I read an article about a woman named Marin Lundby. She's 25 years old. She's a Norwegian ski jumper. She won the gold medal in 2018 in Pyeongchang. And they think she's going to win again in 2022 if this world still exists. Uh, we're still here, right? It'll still exist, but maybe we'll be gone, Lord willing. And, and she's going to try to work over 1,400 days between 2018 to 2022 to win gold in Beijing. And here, here's a couple excerpts from this article I read where she had some things to say. She says, first of all, there's a lot that has to go right. You don't say right? You're flying 100 meters through the air. Of course there's a lot that has to go right. She said with a smile and she embarked, uh, as she embarked on a detailed explanation, how she regularly flies more than 100 meters through freezing cold air. It starts with the in-run where you have to get the right balance, which is really important. Then you have to have the right balance going into the takeoff where you have to push in a really technically correct position. Then you have to end up in an aerodynamically posi uh, aerodynamic position. You know, and I was thinking it would be foolish for the Norwegian Olympic Committee to go around Norway and just pick a random person to, to do the ski jumping in 2022. No, they've got their person. They've trained Marin. They've gone through rigorous training to get her to the point where she can win the Olympic gold. And, you know, it's her time to shine. Putting someone else on the top of that hill might end in death. If it was me, it certainly would. You hurl me over 100 meters and tell me to land on my feet. Even, I mean, even landing on your feet, I would think I would die. That would hurt, right? But the point is, it's her time to shine. This is what she was trained for. This is what she was created for. And I want to really come to our passage this morning with the mind that it's our time to shine as Christians. 
Paul's saying to the Philippians in Philippians 2, if you want to turn there right now, get to our spot. We're going to be in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. This is a time for Christianity to thrive like it never has in this country. And Paul's really going to lay that out for us, looking at the Philippian church, which is highly relatable, I think, to our church as we dig in. And you know, you might think it's foolish to train for something. Your whole life. I mean, Marin Lundby's probably going to give up the best years of her life, we would say, right? In order to win what? Maybe five, six gold medals? They're only every four years, so how many Olympics can she actually compete in? And we might look at that and say, that's ridiculous. That equation doesn't make any sense. But if you look at the lifespan of Marin Lundby, and you take the percentage of what those actual ski jumps are, it's actually a higher percentage than this life of ours compared to eternity. Does that not blow you away? We have one life to live, and when we look back in eternity forward, back to this time on our life, it's going to seem smaller than one ski jump in a lifetime. Let's have that perspective as we dig in this morning and realize that we've got some work to do as the Christian church in this time while it grows darker and darker. So read along with me in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now he starts off this passage, which are therefore, which we all know we need to see what the therefore is there for, right? It's, it's pointing back to something. He's set this up already and he's saying, hey, because of this other thing I told you about, I want to talk to you about this other stuff. And so if we want to go back just in your Bibles here to verse 5, in the same chapter 2, verse 5, we're going to learn about Christ's humility here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's saying... In light of Christ's humility, everybody, in the Philippian church, I have some things to tell you, and that's what we're going to dig into today. So we want to keep the backdrop of Christ's humility, which he is the ultimate example of humility, as we'll see from the scriptures today. So for point number one, I want you to write down this. Work aggressively to grow in humility. Work aggressively to grow in humility. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, the Philippians and you have a good reputation. That's why I love this church. Preaching this is pretty easy because of this, at least in this verse, because I come to this point and I go, you know what? The, the, the Church of Compass Bible Church is doing a great job at getting into the Word, reading it, and applying it to your lives. So, an aspect of today's message is about not growing weary, to continue in that, or maybe being convicted to do it even more, to be in more prayer. But the Philippians, they were doing an overall good job, and Paul is saying, as you have always obeyed. And then he goes into not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You see, something had happened recently where Paul was uh, hundreds of miles away in prison when he wrote this. He was in a Roman prison. The Philippians were without their church father. and They were without their leader, Paul. 
And that can be discouraging at times. And Paul is saying, hey, even though I'm gone from you, I want you to step it up. I want you to get aggressive in growing in Christ's humility. Not go back the other way. You know, recently we were separated as a church when we did church online for a little bit. And Lord willing, we won't have to do that again. Keep praying for that. I pray we never have to do that again. But I want to ask you a question to reflect on that and also to prepare in case it ever does happen again where we are separated in some sense as a church. When we were in that season, was it at a time of increased focus to avoid the temptation to disobey God for you? Or perhaps was it a time of self-pity and a free pass to take a break from obedience? And I'll just be honest with you, the temptation was there for all of us. It had to have been, right? It felt a little bit at first like it was a little bit of like, oh, this is a little bit relaxing for some of us, right? We, we got to just do less stuff and stay at home more, but the temptation crept in to not be in the Word as much, to not be in prayer, to let the days all run together, but we need to be firm in our faith, and we need to do that by being aggressive in our approach to humility, by knowing who Christ is and what He expects, expects of us. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we read this, and it's it's possible that we might start to think Paul's asking us to actually work for our salvation. And that's just not the case because Paul understood there's three dimensions of salvation. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Okay, And justification is what we talk about a lot here as being born again. We are justified before a holy God because Christ died and rose again. And when we turn from our sin and we put our trust in him, we are justified before a holy God because Christ stands in the gap for us. He paid the penalty of our sin. We don't have to endure the wrath of God anymore. We are justified. Sanctification, though, is when we grow more like Christ. And because you're standing here or sitting here with me, I know that when you got saved, Christ didn't take you to heaven. So you're here. You're here to be sanctified, to grow more like Christ, and to ultimately do a job which he says is to make disciples. So we need to think about that today while we look at working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then there's glorification, which I pray we see that sooner than later, right? Please, Lord Jesus, come. Let's go be with Lord Jesus in glory with him as co-heirs of Christ because he died for us. And now we are children of God and our home is in heaven. and We get to go be with him ultimately in our new bodies glorified. And that is the ultimate end of the Christian. But right now, we're in quarter three. Right? We've got some work to do, and God has laid it out for us. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want to uh, just list off some traits of a biblically fearful Christian. I've just got three of them. These aren't exhausted, exhaustive, but a biblically fearful Christian will have some marks about them. And I think in light of what's going on in our culture right now, I want to call these out a little bit with things that I'm seeing I'm tempted to do or be a part of or other people that I'm talking to, and just take these with a grain of salt and let the conviction of the Word of God wash over you. Okay, I'm not going to get into specifics because that's the job of the Holy Spirit on your heart. But I want you to understand it's about what's dominating your mind and heart. I'm going to list some things off that aren't necessarily mutually exclusive because we can't put our heads in the sand as Christians. We need to know what's going on in the world. But what is dominating your head and your heart? That's the question that I want to frame these three with. First of all, a biblically fearful Christian has self-suspicion versus worldly suspicion. Self-suspicion versus worldly suspicion. We need to be far more suspicious of our own motives 
than the motives of the world because we are still in a sinful body. When we were saved, so to speak, the software, I've heard a pastor say, the software was renewed. We are a new creation, but we're still encased in this old hardware that causes us to sin. And so we walk around prone to sin. And we need to question our motives because we are not to that glorification stage yet. And in this day and age, it's really easy to walk around and point out the sin of everything else going on in the world. But we need to look inwardly and be self-suspicious of who we are. We need to have sensitive conscience versus sensitive feelings. A sensitive conscience says, I'm going to care more about my brother and my sister than myself. I'm going to think about what other people are experiencing as a Christian right now in light of the way that I'm living. And also, I'm going to have a sensitive conscience on what God is telling me to do in obedience. We need to be critical, biblical thinkers right now with a very thick skin who don't get easily offended by the world. We should expect the world to offend us. Why are we surprised by it? We need to have a thick skin and have a sensitive conscience. And then thirdly, we need to be on guard against temptation and falling into sin versus on guard against conspiracies. And again, we don't want to have our head in the sand on what's going on in the world, but we do need to be on guard against our temptation to sin. We're all going to be tempted. That is a common experience we even have with Christ. Christ was tempted. Temptation is not a sin. It's when we give into it. And we know that the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking to devour. We need to be on guard against that far more than we are on guard against a sinful world. And do you know a way to know what is dominating your thoughts, your words, and your actions right now? Well, if you have kids, I have kids age 1 up to 12, right? And all I need to do is sit my kids down and say to them, hey, what's most important to daddy? Are you courageous enough to ask your kids that question because they will be honest with you? to the point of hurting your feelings. They do it all the time, right? But be ready for the answer because if it's not something in the realm of the gospel of Jesus Christ or maybe my three-year-old will say, God. Maybe my five-year-old will say, God in the church or Jesus. But maybe my 12-year-old says the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to hear. And if I don't hear that and I hear something worldly, I've got some work to do in my home. I've got some work to do in my heart. We need to be on guard. Again, starting to be more convinced that these problems in the world need to be solved in the way we need to solve them, then the gospel needs to change hearts and save souls. Paul says, work out. This is the idea of continually working out. This is an idea of aggressive Christian living, right? Being in kind of like the Christian, the gym of Christianity. We can't stop. We need to continually be working out our salvation. That means a lot of things. It means being in the Word, being in prayer. In Philippians 3, 12-16, Paul says it like this, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, you think otherwise. God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul goes on, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And thank goodness he says this because we don't do this in our own strength. We need to call upon the strength of God. As one pastor put it, while the believer is working out, God is working in. You know, the fulfillment of verse 12 is impossible without the reality of verse 13. And maybe jot down John 15, 4 through 5 to look at later to just refresh yourself on what God is doing in us. To strengthen us to the call of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul has called us to grow in Christ-like humility, but now he's about to give us what I would like to call spiritual accelerant. Because at the beginning, I, I really want you guys to know that I'm not denying that things are really weird in the world right now. Things are tough. Perhaps this is a time that we've, we're scratching our heads a bit more than we ever have in our entire lives, or we're angry about the things that are going on in our world. And rightfully so. Many of the things are very disheartening. I mean, they're burning Bibles in front of the federal building in Portland. It's disgusting. But there's also a priority that Paul gives us here. And he gives us this spiritual accelerant in this next verse, which is incredible. Because Paul knows it's hard, and he knows that the world's going to say to all of you, and to the Philippian church, hey, life is hard, you have the right to complain. You might even think that you have the right to complain from time to time. But as we're going to learn, there's never a right to grumble or dispute against the holy God. But Paul says, because the world expects you to grumble or dispute, you know how you can explode their minds? is when you, 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 you seemingly have the right to grumble and dispute, and you don't. You turn up the light of Christ when you do that in a way that you can never do it otherwise. And so for point number two, we want to say, turn up the light. Turn up the light. This spiritual accelerant is so counterintuitive to who we are. Especially in this country, we're used to having freedoms and rights and they're slowly getting taken away. And we say to ourselves, but I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. We deserve hell and God saved it from us. And the only thing more incredible, the only thing incredible about that is not that God doesn't save people and they go to hell. The most incredible thing is that God saved anybody. And so we need to turn up the light in this time. I want to read verses 14 through 16 in our passage again. Really see it uh, in this perspective, turning up the light. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You know, our complaining controls this giant dimmer switch in the world. When Paul's talking about the light, he's talking about the sun, moon, and the stars. What would happen if you went outside today and God got rid of the sun, moon, and the stars? It'd be utter darkness all the time. Especially in Paul's time. We have lights now we could turn on. But back then, it'd be utter darkness. Imagine all the lights in the world being turned out at the same time. We need to think spiritually speaking, if none of the Christians shine the light of Christ, who's going to? How dark of a world would it be if you pulled all of the Christians out of the world? Well, someday, unfortunately, this world's going to experience that. But we have the ability at this point, the privilege of being a part of God's plan to see that light get turned up or down. And he says it gets turned up the less that we grumble or that we dispute. You know, I said that was Marin Lundby's time to shine on the ski hill. Well, this is our time to shine. And many of us might say, you know, man, I really wish that I was born in America at a different time. 
where I could experience what America's really about, all of the, you know, the freedom and the, and the rights that we have. But I think if we were to go forward in eternity and look back, we might have a different song we're singing. We might be grateful that God planted us in this generation with the greatest opportunity to see the gospel shine amidst the darkness than has ever existed in this country. That's our time to shine. This is our time to shine. This is when the Christian church should be the most bold about the gospel. And we should be the most confident. Yes, are the people who are searing their hearts, who are burning Bibles on doorsteps, are they going to accept what we say? Most likely not. They've been given over to the enemy. And they're going to hate what we do and it will make its way into our homes and our churches and our schools. But God is still wanting to save souls. There are people who He's preparing their hearts to hear the gospel message right now. And we need to not grumble and not dispute so that when we come to them and we preach the gospel, they see Jesus Christ's humility on display. And they will be saved. And that's how we're going to see revival. We need to humble ourselves before God. And we need to make... We need to put his face in front of us and learn what he has for us. Marin said, I remember my first jump on the big hill when I was 13 years old. Of course, I had a lot of butterflies. I was a bit scared, but at the same time, really excited because it was what I wanted to do, she said. Now I have done it for over 20 years, so I'm used to it. That means she's been jumping hills since she was five years old. So her parents really wanted her to be a ski jumper, huh? But I think many of us, when we think about evangelism and we think about sharing our faith, we'd much rather be put on the top of that ski hill and told to go off that jump than share our faith with other people. It seems scary and difficult, especially in this time. But we need to share our faith so often and grumble and dispute so little that our lives are marked with Christ's humility that it becomes easier and easier. We tell people about the gospel as easy as Marin Lundby goes off that jump every single time. That's where we need to get to. And we have to ask, is grumbling and disputing really that big of a deal? Well, we don't have time to turn there, but on your own, I just would encourage you to go and read Numbers 14, 26 through 38. Numbers 14, 26 through 38. And see how God responds to Israel's complaining. Because it's a big deal. Complaining, grumbling, disputing is actually high treason against a holy God. It is sin. We need to call it a sin because it's going to be more and more tempting as this world grows darker to grumble and dispute more and more because it's going to feel like we have the right to. Israel, we can go all the way back to the roots of Israel, to Adam in the garden. God came to him after the fruit was eaten and God said, what happened? What did Adam say? Well, God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, this wouldn't have happened. He starts complaining and disputing with the way God even did things. Right there. Our ancestor set the tone for the sin we see in our own lives now. And you fast forward, Moses complains to God in the way that he's, the timing and the way he's taking Israel out of Egypt. Then they get out of Egypt and you see this kind of seesaw battle with God, with the Israelites of, you know, he does, he parts the Red Sea and they're, hey God, we, that's amazing. We glorify you. And three days later, they're grumbling. And then he provides them water that they can drink. And then they grumble about food and he provides that. And it kind of gets to this denouement, this climax, where Israel is about to go into the promised land. And they send all these guys, including Caleb and Joshua, right? And they all come back and only Caleb and Joshua say, hey, God's got this. These guys look huge and scary, but God's got this. He promised us this land. Let's go. But the rest of Israel starts grumbling and they come to Moses and they say, 
Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? You brought us out here to die? And this is where we get to this passage that I want you to look up because God comes to Moses. He's like, I'm going to end this because of the grumbling and disputing against a holy God. We have an opportunity in the church right now as Christians in all of our lives to choose the path of not grumbling and disputing and trusting a holy, sovereign God. Because if we say in Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, right? All things. God's sovereign. And then we say James 1-2 through 2 says that He uses trials to work out our sanctification. He grows us in our ability to carry more on our shoulders as Christians. He calls it steadfastness. And then here it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He kind of makes the case that God is this sovereign God who's, who's doing everything. Nothing is getting by him. Nothing's a surprise to God. So when we grumble and dispute, even about the most little things, it is a sin against a holy and sovereign God. We need to set that tone in our lives. And you know, like most things, it starts out small. You might have a habit of grumbling and complaining with your wife or your husband. And you think it's safe because you come home from work and you want to complain about that client or complain about this coworker, And it works its way in to everything else. Just a little background on grumbling and disputing and what it really is saying here in the original Greek or what God is saying through grumbling and disputing in this passage. Grumbling is an emotional response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing. You know... Have you guys experienced anything unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing in the last seven months? Maybe? Yeah? Just possibly? Yeah. And again, we don't want to minimize the fact that it is unpleasant, it is inconvenient, and it is disappointing. We're not minimizing that. We're maximizing who God is as a sovereign God. And he's using it for the good of all of us because we love him and we're called according to his purpose. Disputing is an intellectual quarrel, talking about how things ought to be. God, I know that you're doing it this way, but I really wish you'd do it that way. Where are you, God? What are you doing? You see it a lot in the Psalms, right? The first half of the Psalm is, God, what are you doing? And the second half of the Psalm is the humbling point of, wait a minute, God is with us. Who can be against us? God is sovereign. I trust him. You know, a person who continues to grumble against God will eventually dispute with him. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, men first question the truth and then they fall from truth. You know, unfortunately, Paul doesn't just leave it there. In our passage, he continues to now lay out three different reasons to stop complaining, which is great because we need some motivation here. Yes, we want to not grumble or dispute because it's a sin against God, but we want to see how God's going to use that life to grow us, to save souls, to ultimately please those around us. So the first part here in verse 15, it says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. God wants you to not grumble and dispute because of you, for your own sake. He wants you to be the child of God that he saved you to be. And James, when it talks about being perfect and complete, that's what it's talking about. You know, G.I. Joe used to say, be all that you can be. That's what God wants us as, to be as Christians. Be all that you can be, that he has saved you to be. Because we are children of God, we should be imitators of God. And we should be able to say like Paul in Ephesians 5.1, imitate me as they imitate Christ. You know, that's not just for Paul or for pastors. That's for every Christian. We should all be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And all of us with children, if we look at Deuteronomy 6.7, it talks about 
making everything about the gospel and about God's law from morning until night. We can't do that if our lives aren't about the gospel and God's law from morning until night. There's no way around it. You know, he uses the word blameless here. It's without defect or blemish. You know, as Christians, we should seek to have no moral or spiritual blemish. And so, just in a moment of transparency here, when I was in high school, I had really bad zits, okay? And it was not fun. I spent a lot of time and attention on those things because I was just embarrassed and I hated it. And looking back in God's sovereignty, he used it to humble me, and that was necessary at the time. But people gave me all kinds of, like, advice to get rid of zits, like, put your face in the freezer or... You know, put toothpaste all over your face or use a blow dryer on your face, dry out your face before bed, do whatever, sit in Epsom, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, and none of it worked. But God here is saying, hey, I've got the cure for a spiritual or moral blemish, and it's not grumbling or disputing. Because when we walk around and we grumble or dispute, we are tainted in the gospel message. We have these scars from grumbling and disputing And no one's attracted to that. We need to be attractive as Christians for those people that God is calling into him and is preparing to hear the gospel message. If we're grumbling and disputing, there's no way that we can also be used for God to preach the gospel in that moment as effectively as we could have been because that is anti-Christ-like. Christ had the ultimate reason to complain. You know, the most powerful example of this is when Christ is hanging on a cross the worst, most humiliating way to die that man has ever created. He lived a perfect life and died for our sins. He died the death we deserved. He didn't deserve to be up there. And he doesn't say anything other than, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He saw the long game. Paul saw the same long game. This isn't about protecting my rights or protecting my feelings. This is about being about God's work. The word innocent is this idea of being unmixed. And I really think about it in terms of what we say. Let's not mix our words, right? We don't want to have a mixture of grumbling and disputing with also the gospel and and biblical truths coming out of our mouth. I came up with this term years ago for myself because the biggest point of learning and humbling for me was to say less. can be a bold person. And I learned that I would offend people often with my words, so I, I came up with this term, when in doubt, leave it out. Right? And then I kind of came up with this equation. I, 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 over time, kind of calculated that I should say about 5% of what's in my mind. About For every 20 words, one of them should come out. And some of you, that might be 7%, 10%. Some of you, maybe 1%. I'll leave that to you to pray to God and maybe ask your wife or your husband where your percentage should be. But all of us probably could use a little bit of filtering in what we say. Right? Well, then I was curious. I was thinking about this. Well, if I've kind of come up with this equation for my own life, and I think it's about 5% of what I should say, what's the equation for social media? I think it's probably somewhere between 0% and 0.08%, just to throw out a number of what we should actually say of what we're thinking on social media. And I'll let that convict you where it hits you. But this is a time where our preaching and our teaching and our gospel messages don't just come in what we say in human interactions out in the real world. Everything we say, do you realize this? Everything you type, everything you put out into the world, 
Everything you put in front of people, you'll be held accountable to one day. And if every bit of grumbling and disputing is a sin before a holy God, that should scare us a little into lowering the percentage of how many things come out of our mind and into our fingertips and onto our keyboards and out into the world. I should be able to go onto your feed and know that you're a Christian living in the humility of Christ far before I know what political party you stand with. Again, what is dominating us? There are things we need to fight for in this world and be a part of. And there are things that we should partake in as good citizens of this country. We don't want to put our head in the sand. But what is dominating our timelines? What is dominating our conversations? What is dominating our head and our heart? Because Paul's saying, hey, if you start to grumble and dispute, you're going to lose your identity in Christ. You're not going to be spotless and blameless above reproach. And he goes on here in the second half of 15 to give us our next reason. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, we need to not grumble and dispute for the sake of the lost. I was going to go into a little bit on a crooked and twisted generation, but I don't think in this time, in this place, I need to convince you we live in a crooked and twisted generation. We all got that. All right, we can, we, can, we can say amen to that. We know we live in a crooked and twisted generation, and it may get worse. But he says, holding fast to the word of life. It's referring to the scriptures or the gospels here. And, and it might, even in the Greek, it could also be looked at as holding out or holding forth. So it's not just us holding fast to the gospel. It's us holding it out to a lost world. We need to be bringing the gospel to people. That should be the first thing on the tip of our tongues and the first priority in relationships that we have with people or where we spend our time. James 3, 10 through 11 says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? It's impossible to preach the gospel and complain at the same time. That's what he's saying among many other applications. But for today, that's what he's saying. We cannot grumble and dispute and preach the good news to a lost world. It just can't happen. In verse 16, it goes on to say, So that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And this is really for the sake of Paul. He's saying, hey, for the sake of your leaders, for those who labor for this church, please don't grumble and dispute. And he's talking about the day of Christ. That's not the day of the Lord. These are two different things. We're not talking about the judgment of sinners who are lost. We're talking about a time of judgment for believers where there'll be rewards like I talked about before. Every word will be held accountable before Christ. But we have an opportunity here to also serve Christ and see the rewards that are in heaven for us. A lot of times we shy away from that because we don't want to think about serving the Lord for rewards, but with the right motives and doing it for a good father. That's not a bad motive. God tells us to think about these things, to think about heaven and being with him in perfect union and seeing the fruit of the work that we've done here in this wretched world. And Paul's saying, hey, make that time sweet for me. I'm your pastor, and I want you to run this race well so I can look back at my time with you Philippians 
And I can say, hey, I did all the work that I needed to do for the Philippian church to grow more in Christ's humility, to grow more like Christ, to not grumble in dispute, so they finished the race well. I want to I partake in that, that reward with you. And I'll tell you this, I've only been a pastor for a couple of months here at this church and in life, right? It's been an amazing couple of months. What a blessing and a privilege. But I can tell you, the reason I love this church is because I've learned in a short period of time that there's no greater blessing than seeing all of you hunger after righteousness and seek the Lord and see you getting into this and applying it to your lives and being diligent in prayer and seeing you grow in application of where Christ wants you to be and what he wants you to do. But I'll tell you what, there's nothing more discouraging on the other end than hearing grumbling and disputing. Those are the two sides of my experience of the most encouraging thing and the most disappointing thing. And we're all tempted to do it. But I want to make sure and stop for a moment again and, and just make sure you know that I'm not minimizing the difficulty that we're in. But I do believe it's going to get harder. And so I want to prepare our hearts for this. This is a great stopping point on the journey of Christianity in America to say, hey, let's take a rest stop and let's tune our hearts to being grateful and to rejoicing in what God's given us to do as a call for Christ and to not complain about the little things in comparison to the really big things, the eternal things. And as we see in our passage, Paul continues. In verse 17, he says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, Paul was writing this while in prison, probably chained to a Roman guard. But Paul, understanding eternity, rewards, and the brevity of life, looked at sacrifice for the Lord as a privilege. And that's what I want us to do. For point number three, write it down like this. Rejoice in the privilege of sacrifice. Rejoice in the privilege of sacrifice. You know, in high school, I was on a really good soccer team. And I was in a smaller school that didn't have as much funding, but man, we had a great team. We even won the state championship one year. And all four years, the team had different levels of success. But the way that we would win is we had one of those coaches who said, hey, they might beat us in this skill or they might beat us in recruiting or whatever, but they're not going to beat us in fitness. So he would run us until we threw up all the time. It was hard. And most people quit. But you know what was the difference between the teams that won the state championship and the ones that didn't? It was the captains of the team, the upperclassmen, the leaders. Because when we were running those hills on loose sand, up giant hills, and you're starting to puke, and you're like, is this worth it? Those leaders would say, hey, guys, rejoice in the sacrifice because we're going to win the state championship if we stick with this. They saw the big picture. They saw the outcome. And they would lead us to victory. And Paul's doing that here. He's saying, hey, listen, guys, don't grow weary. I'm with you. I'll pour myself on top of your sacrifice. Keep sacrificing. Keep going. And you got me in your corner always. A 17th century Puritan, Thomas Brooks, said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. You see, if I preached this morning and I talked about everything I'm talking about and then we went out to the parking lot and you saw me complaining about the weather, you'd probably be like, man, really? After everything he said about complaining is a sin and he's out there complaining about the weather, you see, there's an opportunity here for us to be an example to our children, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to everyone around us, believing in what God says about him and his plan. 
And Paul says drink offering here. What is a drink offering? Well, after placing a sacrificial animal on the altar, the priest would take wine or sometimes water mixed with honey and they would pour it on the sacrifice or they would pour it in front of the altar. And the idea was it was this kind of activation of bringing that sacrifice up to the nostrils of the deity. So Paul's saying here, hey, you guys are doing a great job sacrificing. And I want to say to this church, keep going. You guys are doing great. Continue to get into the word and apply it. Continue to put others first. To do all the things we're talking about here today. And we will gladly pour ourselves on top of that. Paul's actually kind of saying their sacrifice was greater than his. He was speaking in humility. Saying that he would gladly come alongside of them and activate their sacrifice any time of the day. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. You know, believers aren't supposed to rejoice in spite of the sacrifice or the sufferings, but because of them. A true believer's greatest joy comes at the point of their greatest sacrifice. You know, in Acts 5, what stands out to me the most in Acts 5 is Peter's absolute joy in being counted worthy of sacrifice for the Lord. We see this over and over again. Wow, God, you're really going to take me and pick me up out of the, the tool chest and use me in that way? What a joy. What a joy and what a privilege to be part of God's plan, to see lost souls be saved. And it's not going to come with comfort all of the time. Unfortunately, many believers experience joy in the same equation the world does. When things are good and I'm comfortable, I will be happy and excited for life. When things are difficult, when things are bad, I become sad and resentful. And that's just not the equation we see in Scripture. That's not the example of Christ's humility. I think that the reason that so many Christians can't relate to Paul's kind of joy is that they have not experienced his kind of sacrifice. But we will have the opportunity here in this world we're living in to sacrifice for the Lord. And we need to make sure it's for the Lord. We need to be self-suspicious. Are we doing this for the Lord? Or am I doing this for some other reason? You know, looking at our time, perhaps God has orchestrated the current events that we're experiencing to strengthen the sacrifice muscles of the church. You know, he's, he's preparing us. He's getting us into the mindset of Christ's humility to sacrifice more. Because it's impossible to be more like Christ without being more sacrificial. It just is. That's who Christ is. That's what he did for us. He sacrificed everything have you ever really thought about Christ living 33 years without giving in to any temptation to sin? It's unbelievable to me. We focus so much on his death and resurrection as we should, but he lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve one sideways look. He was the most misrepresented person to ever walk this life, and we get so offended when we're misrepresented for even one second. So I would say that the time has come. I think the Christian church in America, if we can relate it back to Marin Lundby, this is our Beijing 2022. This is our time to shine. This is our chance to do what Christians do. You know, we expect ski jumpers to do ski jumping things. We need to expect Christians to do Christian things. That's where we need to be going into the next, this next season. Just like the country of Norway will look on in 2022, an expectation of Marin doing what she was created and trained for, Christ is looking on, expecting us to do what he died for. We want to think about working aggressively to grow in Christ-like humility. 
to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God. We need to stop complaining or prepare ourselves to not complain. Because even if we're not complaining right now, I'm telling you what, we're all going to be tempted to do it. Because we need to turn up the light of Christ. We need to rejoice in the privilege of sacrifice. And you know the great thing is, we don't run this race for an imperishable gold medal. Because even if Marin Lundby wins five or six gold medals in her lifetime, those will burn away. Those won't last forever. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9 as we close here to give some perspective of what we do run the race for. I want to put our minds as we close today on eternity and really think about what we're doing now and how it will affect the rest of our existence with Christ as we enter into glorification with Him. Starting in verse 24, it says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, when Marin Lundby takes flight and flies 100 meters through the air in 2022, she and her coaches will have done everything they can do to win the gold medal. And when you and I take flight to meet Christ in the air or he takes us home, I pray that we'll have done everything to win the prize that is imperishable. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we come to you and we just, we just praise you that you are our compass. Lord, with what's going on in the world right now, we would be completely lost without knowing what you, what you expect of us. Lord, help us to grow more like Christ in humility. Help all of us to grow in that way. Help us to understand who Christ is and how he set the example for us and has given us every bit of strength in order to accomplish this feat. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Please guide us. Guide us towards righteousness and righteous living and decisions that would honor and glorify you, Lord. Help us not to grumble and dispute. Help us to understand the weight of that sin. Lord, I have not understood that weight for so long in my life. I have grumbled and disputed before you, a holy God, and not understood the true weight of that, that it is holy treason against a high and holy God, Lord. Help us to be a people that finish this race well. Lord, help us to rejoice in the sacrifice. Help us to really understand the privilege of the sacrifice you call us to. Lord, For so, there's so many times in my life that I imagine I have complained about the very thing you've put in my life to grow me more like Christ. What an ultimate irony in the Christian church, Lord. Help us to be rid of that. Lord, we've been so comfortable for so long. We've gotten so used to so many things that we don't want to let go of. Help us to let go of them for you. Help us to understand the fine line between preaching the gospel and being aware of what's going on in the world. Help us to be so consumed, so burdened by the things that you have said to us in Scripture that everything else fades to the background. 
and gives very little noise to our lives, Father. I pray for this church. I pray that we would not grow weary, Lord. I pray that a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, until you come back and take us home, Lord, that this church would stand strong in your truth. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just grow here as a church because people are escaping some other state, but we would grow because souls are being saved in this treasure valley because we are going to get out of our comfort zone and we are going to rejoice in the sacrifice of our comfort, of our time, of our money, to see souls be saved. Lord, guide our hearts to that this week. Lord, help us to be changed today, tomorrow, and forever in this church to align with who you are in Scripture. Help us to hold fast and to hold forth the Word of God to those who are lost in our community. We love you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.